0: Let me start with an opening kind of story that frames how I think this works. Um, Latia mentioned that I have three daughters. Um, They, actually, they are my reason for being, right? Um, And I said this last time, and so if I'm being repetitive and you were on the the Zoom when I said it, is I love being a dad, and my most honest thing that I can say right now is I'm having to reconstruct a relationship with my daughters where 13, they, I was like the center of their universe. They, their mom and I, were the, the, we were the center. And now in their teenage years, and, and my oldest daughter, she she turns 19 today. It's like they we're not the center anymore, and that's appropriate and that's wonderful. Except it doesn't feel great when you were in that other place. And I'm just trying to have to, I'm trying to negotiate what that means. And I'm not doing it very well, like I kind of like being the center of people's universe, especially my daughters. So, that's the most honest thing I can say. My oldest daughter, her name is Imani, she turns 19 today, she's a freshman at the University of San Francisco. Middle daughter, her name is Verena, she is a junior at Lincoln High School. And then Kairos, whose birthday is in two days, um, she is in eighth grade at Lincoln Middle. So, um, the story is... I just remember when they were younger, um, so Imani hadn't even um, hit 12 yet. And we were driving around different places. We were probably driving through the plaza. and one of the girls asked like, "Dad, what what are those people doing on the corner?" And I tried to explain it and it's like, So I think they might be hungry and if they have a sign, it usually says, can you spare some change or do you have some food? And so my daughter would just say, well, so don't we have some food that we can give them? I was like, we do. Um, What do you think we should do about it? And as we talked through it, we decided that we would create these uh, care packages that we would leave in the back of our car and if someone asked us for money or the, we would just give them the care package, right? And I had the girls like spend some time thinking about it and what, what we wanted to put in. Uh, and so that's what we did. And, and so we loaded up like probably 15 to 20 bags um, and we put them in the car. And then so I remember when we went through they were excited, right? to get, And I was like, okay, first of all, you can't like push the bags on people. Like, let folks ask, right? Don't go up and assume that someone might be homeless, right? Um, And so we did that, and within a week's time frame, we had given away all of our bags. And I remember when we had given them away, um, the girls kind of said, "Well, wait a minute, why are there so many folks that we have to give bags to? Can we just pause there for a second? Because if we're going to have a conversation about sin, that's at the heart of it. And because I'm a classically kind of uh, trained um, clergy person, I just want to root us in Christian scripture for a minute. Okay. Um, this comes out of John, John 5, 1 through 9. Could I just have someone who be willing to just read the, the, the passage? I i will put in somebody up. Please. After this, there was a
1: festival of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, there is a pool called, in Hebrew, Beth Zappa, which has five porticos. In these lay many invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am making my way, someone else steps down ahead of me. Jesus said to him, Stand up, take your mat, and walk. At once the man was made well, and he took up his mat and began
0: to walk. Thank you. So we have this image, right, if you could see it, and, and this this is, says Bethsaida, but Bethsaida is another kind of um, interpretation if you're familiar with this pattern. And it's a pool. And the idea is that the pool has healing generative powers. If you can just make your way down to the pool. But this man, so the story, focuses when we read this about this man and his interaction with Jesus and can he get down to the pool because the image that's there is like I'm really close but then people kind of get in front of him right and you can't just go down all the time there are particular times when the pool has healing powers and as he tries to go down there then others kind of clear him out of the way and they get there first So I'm giving you context, but I just want to ask for a second, like when you hear this being read, and when you read it it, up on the screen, like what stands out to you about what's going on here? No one's
1: helping them.
0: Go ahead, say it again.
1: No one's helping them get there. No
0: one's helping them, right? Because uh, you can imagine that there are other folks, and they want to kind of, when the pool is welling up at the right time, they want to get down there. Someone else said something over here. It's not
1: fair.
0: What's not
1: fair? That
0: this man has been there 30 years. It's like he's been waiting in line. If there is even a line, right? But th- you're right, it's not fair. Like, why does he keep getting left behind? What else is going on? I'm wondering if there is a, if this is a community of folks who have different disabilities. So if they're in the same situation, they really can't help each other out in that way. Uh, So the team is asking, uh, is this a community of folks and she's also asking another question: can they help each other out? Like, is there a way that they could help each other kind of get down there together? But that takes conversation, and it, right? So, it, are they connected in any way? What else strikes you? Yeah. Dude that lays by the pool,
1: right?
0: right? Mm-hmm. That's kind of his thing.
1: He's forgotten and neglected.
0: Has he been there? I really appreciate um, your point. Like, has he been there so long that he's just one of those dudes that just lays by the pool, right? There are some other guy that other people that may just have they just got down here. Maybe we should get them. Like, he he's just a lay by the pool kind of guy. What else strikes you about what's going on here? He doesn't know that there's somebody there that could help when Jesus comes. Yeah, know. does he? Is there? He doesn't know that there's someone else. And then what's really what's really happening? Then Jesus, he has this interaction. And then Jesus says, "Get up, pick up your mat, and walk." And if you're like me, and I hope you're not like me, but if you grew <laughs> up like me, we focus in on this interaction between Jesus and this man, and we love it because the man gets up and walks. And we think about what healing and salvation looks like in that context. Liberation theology wants to ask a different question liberation theology wants to ask what about all those other people by the pool that did not get that were not asked to get up and walk I want to be really clear here I'm not trying to analyze should Jesus have done all of that, that's a separate question that if you ask me offline I can kind of tell you (laughs) I, I have an answer for that But what liberation theology wants to ask is not looking at the relationship between a savior and one person, but what's the relationship between the people around the pool and why do we focus in on the one person who gets healed? What about all those other folks? And what happens to them when they get turned, the dude that just has been there forever. Because after a while, you won't understand, even in our society today, if we do a thing for a certain amount of time, we get labeled just that person. You're that person that does that thing. And then we know about self-fulfilling prophecy and all of those things, and then you just become that person. And the question becomes, yes, salvation is important, but when you're looking through Scripture, we should be asking, what about all those other folks? What happens to them? And Gustavo Gutierrez is is very clear. And the words that he used, he talks about the poor. He's talking about the economic poor. And liberation theology then in all kinds of ways starts to talk about the poor in different ways, right? So black liberation theology talks about black folks, right? queer liberation theology talks about clear folks, but Gustavo Gutierrez is talking about the poor and what he's doing and what's really important for us to consider here is he's talking about a real situation in Peru where folks are poor, and they're everywhere. And his critique of the church is, what has salvation done for one person when You walk another step and you see so many people who are poor. And he's asking the church, what about them? What does salvation look like for them? So, just to be, um, (laughs) some considerations for you. For Gustavo Gutierrez, theology is rooted in an, an historical reality, right? This isn't just a conversation we're having in a particular time and place, but there is an historical reality. People are poor and have been poor for a while, and there are reasons that have made them poor. It's the question about how did folks even get to the pool? And why are they laying by the pool? Are there conditions that made that possible? And what he's actually asking is what's the context, which is the second point, theology is contextual. What's the context if we have a set of haves and have-nots, then what's the context in which the have-nots continue to not have access? You need to read and understand in this context that for Gustavo Gutierrez, the haves are folks who locate themselves inside the church. So he is making a very specific critique. And then the last thing is, the, the important thing there that I just said is like, what about all the other folks laying by the pool? And why is it that we set up salvation to be happening at particular times in particular places? Why isn't it always available, to folks? So here's the essential thesis that I want us to work with tonight is If we have a robust understanding of salvation, that means that we need to understand the threat, right? So salvation from what? Why do we need salvation? (laughs) Um, Then we need to have an expansive understanding of sin. So the whole first, my first kind of conversation with you, why do we understand sin in this kind of way more than just personal, more than just one-to-one, is if we understand salvation to be big, right? If we understand salvation to be shalom, the reordering of creation so that things are right, we are in right relationship with God. If you have a big understanding of salvation, then you gotta have a big understanding of sin, or else what's the point? Because the question is salvation from what? And if all you're thinking about is sin is what I did to you or the wrong that I did to you, then why do we have such a big understanding of salvation Of salvation, if that's our only understanding of sin? So let me just do some more work here with uh, what Gutierrez is saying. I clearly don't understand how to use this.
1: Uh, the other one. You're, you're right clicking, so the other.
0: Yeah, yeah. See? Sometimes salvation is about asking. <laughs> Alright. So in Gutierrez's framework there are three levels of liberation. And by here he's talking about like liberation he equates with salvation. Not, liberation is more, right? To be very clear, Gutierrez does not understand salvation to be the final act, it's about liberation. So I just want to share this with you. The first level Right is liberation from oppression, and this is really important for us. It's like the poor should be a part of liberating themselves from social economic from economic oppression. In organizing, my organization talks about those closest to the pain should be part of the solution, because what we don't want to construct is a situation where we do for people. We have done that for a long time, right? Those who have power and those who have uh, wealth. And those who have the means, they construct a whole set of like, "These people need, just need to do this, and we're going to do that." Gutierrez is saying that the people who are the targets in this case, the poor, need to be a part of the liberated process. The second point is liberation from human consciousness. This is Gutierrez's understanding of free will. But I pose it as this, it's the understanding of oneself as a liberative community. So when LaTia is asking the question in the passage in John about like do the people are they connected or are they just trying to get their moment of salvation in that space like do they understand? Is there a way in which the poor, the folks who find themselves in that situation it benefits the the, the the social construct of the time for them to see themselves as individuals. He's asking, do they understand themselves as a community, a liberated community, that then can advocate for their own liberation? And what would happen if... In that case the people around the pool said Why is it that healing only comes at certain times And it's about a certain number of people that came in Maybe there's a different construct that we need to analyze About what's happening in the pool Who has access to it And then why folks are just laying around for these particular times And then this is the thing that we want to talk about tonight Is liberation from sin and how Gutierrez understands this is he just says that sin is a lack of love. If it's about what we do to neighbor, because what we do to neighbor is connect, because neighbor is connected to God, then really sin is this fact that we do not have love. I do not love you enough to want you lifted out of your current economic condition. Let me pause for a minute. We're gonna do some tabletop conversations, but this is a sermonic conversation. (laughs) How does any, what's hitting you right now as you hear this? Yeah.
1: So it's basically just a lack of empathy, a lack of concern for
0: fellow people? Um, I think it's a little more than that. It begins there. I think there is an important question about, can, can I answer the question this way, is I think there's something that happens in me when I drive through the plaza in different parts of town and I see people who are hungry and they're asking for something, my, just, my thing is like oh those folks are panhandlers and I have a whole way of thinking about it and my daughters have enough empathy to say why can't we change this situation. The only reason I hesitated is it's not just about a lack of empathy because sometimes what happens is we feel a thing inside of us and we don't do anything about it. And what we're gonna look at in a minute is, yes, putting the bags together is really important, but the question that liberation theology asks is how did folks get in that particular condition? That's what we mean by structural sin, is there are of structures that created that situation so yes, it's, the empathy reveals to us that the world is not as it should be. What else is hitting you? And you don't have to buy what I'm selling. You might be like, ah, I, got, I got some questions here. I'm wondering. Uh, there's something you said and I can't remember exactly, but it's making me think about how sometimes I, uh, believe the myth of scarcity, right? So that if I, help you, then there's less for me. Absolutely. And there are, there, there is a benefit, there are some benefit for us believing in the myth of scarcity, right? That's not accidental, that, that we are in a tug of war between, do we live with abundance or do we live with a mindset of scarcity? Again, and, and. And again, one of the most important things that liberation theology has taught me is to start to ask, here's the thing I'm seeing, but how did that come to be? And to not accept the easy answers about, well, that's just the way it is, absolutely. What else is hitting you? So I'm thinking about uh,
1: the system of white supremacy culture. And the tenets that uh, Tina Okun and McKenna Jones bring up, and one of them is the the individualistic and how the tenets of the society function in order to keep that going. So we decide people should be individual because that's like, oh, that's powerful, you just do stuff by yourself. But making that important also helps keep us apart and not organizing to change the the systems of
0: structures. That's right. The more we see ourselves as disconnected from other folks, the more we don't have a sense of the number of folks who could stand with us and be with us as we seek to make change, right? So one of the push, one of the retaliations to making change is getting folks to understand themselves as being isolated from others. Yeah? I was just gonna say, um,
1: it's deciding who my neighbor is. You know, Jesus' sermon on the mount. He's like, be you know, be kind to your lovers. If you make an oath, don't break it with your friends. But then the last thing he does is he says, everybody's in your inner circle.
0: Everybody's your neighbor. Yeah. So then everything applies to everybody. Yes. It, it, can I say yes and and then? say the answer later on, like do a little bit of a cliffhanger in our conversation. So you're absolutely right, is can we start to see, can we start to reinterpret who really is our neighbor? And all I want to do is to say, and I think, not, actually I don't think about this, I know, Gutiérrez would say, we need to understand neighbor, we need to be really clear. It's not just who is neighbor, that is important, because that's connected to our definition of love, but that it's our neighbors who are oppressed. Right? That becomes really important. And that doesn't mean, right? We can have the conversation. We get it. it doesn't mean that not everybody is important. It just means that we turn our attention to those who are most vulnerable. What does that mean? Alright. So I want to ask you another question. Look at that. <laughs> so here's what I want to. You've already heard. That within liberation theology, we reinterpret sin to not just be about what I do to you or what I see in front of me, but like what what are the conditions that cause that? I just want to ask you: Where do you see traces of structural sin? And maybe let me do it this way, because I know we're supposed to have the conversation at the end, but um, I'm not a very good rule follower. How about at your table, we just have the conversation right now, just as it, give you five minutes. Like, where do you see traces of? structural sin. Now, I haven't defined it for you yet, right? So I'm going to let you unpack it a little bit, and then we're going to talk about that. And now, I'm not just, I don't need you to define the poor the way you did stuff. I'm asking you, here and now, today, in your life, where do you see traces of structural sin? So let's take five minutes to have the conversation, and we'll come back together. Alright. So I'm going to... Ask you to kind of wrap up what you're saying at your table. What'd you talk about? Where do you see traces of structural sin around you? I, I, can I say? So here's my caveat. I should have given you the caveat front. Right. Like, I absolutely understand what you mean if you stand up and say, or just report out and say, everywhere. Like again, <laughs> right? But I want to hear because here's here's the thing. If structural sin is everywhere, then it's nowhere. you hear me? Do you understand what I mean by that? Like, if we say, like, it's everywhere, it's all around us. I want you to be specific because we have to start to pinpoint what do we mean by it. Because in some ways, all I'm doing is having a conversation with the choir here but as we carry this conversation out into our world, we have to talk about it, because it's not a given that everybody believes in structural sin. Within theological circles, there, if I was in a room full of folks who were studying and talking about theology, there would have been a lot more interjections and interruption. Like, that's not the given. So I just want us to make sure that we're clear when we see it, what we So having kind of put the wet blanket on any um, answer that you were going to give, like where do you see it around our justice system? Say more. Uh, Like just the
1: idea of if uh, say for instance somebody like is drinking and driving, and then they have to go to jail for thirty days to like do the time, but in that time we like in those thirty days our system doesn't get them into programs with their discipline, so then they're still a slave, like if they are alcoholic they're still a slave to that. Yes. But there's no structures helping them, so like that's that structural sin.
0: So multiple things you're saying that I think are really important. Like what does it mean to create an appropriate punishment for a crime? Right? So that's really important. Maybe some things are about rehabilitation, not just about like punishment, right? And then the third thing that I thought you were gonna go and so I'm gonna take a little license and interject here, are just a system that starts to look at people, and if you're black and if you're white, it looks really different. Yeah. There is a reason why Kansas City, Missouri, is starting to say, we're not going we're going to reduce sentencing on low-level crimes, on crimes around um, uh, for people who have who possess marijuana, right? It's because the people who are arrested for marijuana look a particular way. So that is an example of structural sin. Is like that whole thing about justice being blind and holding out the scales, that may be true, but the people who enforce the justice are not blind. I, went, I was supposed to let y'all talk about it. <laughs> where, where else do you see it?
1: The, the fact that housing is not a human right. Um, for any developed nation it doesn't make any sense anyway. But when, you, when you think about that like, we have a huge problem in our always afford to live inside Yeah, and that the systems that are set up for the benefit of persons who have money to build, they're the ones who have the power and they're not held accountable when they create issues that trickle down to leaving no no space
0: for other humans to live when they're in poverty or disabled. What does it mean to say, that living, like like living in a shelter is a human right. Like what yep. do we mean by that? What do we mean by affordable housing? There's a group in town, the um, that, that have really been pushing Kansas City and the mayor to think about right. what affordable housing means, right? Because it used to be like when we peg affordable housing at uh, And I understand why we need to do all these things, but when you peg it to kind of the the median income and all that, let me just tell you, $1,500 a month is not affordable housing. Lots of people can afford that. Right? But that doesn't mean that there are lots of people who can't. And here's the thing that I want us to examine when we think about the structural sin, because you're absolutely right, is The reason why we charge those kinds of things is you have to come back a little bit. When we start offering tax incentives in particular areas to build up those areas, those areas that I'm talking about are urban areas, tax incentivized urban areas that we build things for and we let the builders do that. We take the taxes out of those areas and then they can charge the rent that goes to the builders but they're trying to recruit a particular demographic. These are the questions we need to ask but what happens is we put it in the context of affordable housing and so you're right to question that but we also then put it in the context of like trying to get people to move back into blighted areas like these are code words that are connected to our structural understanding of who's in and who's out i understand the economic policy the person of faith in me says that I am not bound to live by the economic policy that you want me to believe. Okay, I'm not going to comment on everyone, but it kind of gets me all excited that I have something to say, but I'm going to pause. All right, uh, other, yes, yes, and then we'll, we'll come to you in. start to think about, like, who has, who never has to worry about the water? How does the water get controlled? So the story of Flint is, yes, it was terrible water and it made people sick, but it was about governmental decisions about who controlled the water source and then what we made available. And then the question, again, that you need to ask is, like, is this true for everybody? Because it's not. Absolutely. So, great point. Yes? Uh, I was going to talk about the sexual sin of uh, the the
1: work on women's bodies and just abortion and even if a woman is raped and the the leniency in our our, our criminal justice system against rapists.
0: And who's the we-passing the laws? And who's the we-passing laws? Absolutely. And let me take a step back because that's a really important point. Right? But let me take a step back and it's like, just our understanding and our view of women. Mm-hmm. And who we consider women to be. Mm-hmm. And what it means when we say, act like a lady, and all of the implications, and I'll just make one other point about this, is We reinforce oppressive measures in a variety of ways. We isolate folks, right? We then, um, we exploit them. We nullify their voices. This is true all the way around, but it's particularly poignant to me right now, is the ultimate form of how we nullify women is through violence. Ultimately, the way that we reinforce power, particularly as it relates to sexism, is violence. And that's the conversation that we have with women. It's, it's about how we act violently. And there is something in maleness, as someone who identifies as male, I have to come to grips with the fact that there is something in being male that when I can't work it out, my tendency is to resort to that is both an individual and a stru- like trying to understand the structural thing. And then the decision makers that then say what's right and what's wrong, the men also have a way of being to reinforce that through vital tendencies. And then that's what you see kind of in the ether around politics. Okay, one more.
2: Yeah. Oh, two more. We'll, we'll, we'll go two more. I think structural sin in like the realm of personal responsibility and Accountability of like your fellow person or the demographics that are unaffected by oppression, but still not—I mean, not held accountable. Like we don't—we don't, we know the percentages of the people that get out, and, that got out and voted for Trump. We know the people that are not voting. We know the people that are not saying anything. And I think the the thing is to be louder towards those who are not doing anything. To be to make it more of a voice that there's a problem for not being get, for not being involved, for not actually being cognizant of anything. A lot of people are, you know, awarded their luxury to, like, not, to be able to not, to not think about, you know, be 26, 27, and brag about not voting for the last three elections, you know what I mean? Like, you can you can walk outside and have a conversation with, some you know, a white 27, 26, 27-year-old 27 male, and He'd be a you know a great person, but he just casually slip out. Yeah, I don't really vote, no. and it's like, you know, that's where you got to draw the line and hold somebody. for something because there's a lot of people being hurt because you don't want to. You want to be a kid, you know. You want to not grow up. You want to be. You want to live in your own world where you don't have any responsibilities for or empathy towards anything going on in this world. It's. I think that like the biggest structural sin is. The politeness of white people, in my honest opinion, it's it's the I don't really want to step on his toes. It's how he feels, but we need to like the only way these things get better is by getting in the faces of the people that don't want to do anything. We have to, you have to be a little bit louder. You gotta speak what you actually mean and make that the topic of the conversation. It's not really about like accepting, like discriminating views anymore because you know it's can't to, to if you're not anti-racist you're racist you know that that that's literally it you, you have to feel a way towards this and you got to feel a way towards it when other people don't feel away that's the biggest that's the biggest thing not your I mean it's good to be aware on your own and you know to like apply yourself to ways to get educated but if you're not sharing it with every single person around you you're not you're not doing anything because we, we, we already count on the people that go out and educate themselves or care about it. It's about your, your brother, your aunts, your uncles, your cousins. It's actually about having those conversations and actually standing and speaking on what you want to I mean what you want to say you believe in. Absolutely. And yeah. Who are our people? Hmm. And who are our people,
0: and then how are we connected to them? and then how do we start to stand with them? Yes, right? I, I just love your point about um, if you're not anti-racist, you're racist, like, so uh, uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, formerly of South Africa, said it this way because he was addressing this whole idea of people saying, hey, I'm neutral. Like, this, this isn't my fight, I'm neutral. That's a privilege. See? Absolutely <laughs> a privilege. And, he was say, and, and his, his way to get people to understand that was to say, like, ask the mouse if the elephant's standing on his tail. Ask the mouse if he thinks the elephant yeah, is being exactly neutral. Right? So that's it. Thank you. So yeah, um, I
1: just had a comment about. Um, I was thinking about the pollution comment, and I thought like, where, where does pollution come from? A lot of it comes from cars and driving, and talk about structural sin. You know, uh, cars like have spread out cities, made people distant from each other, so that we don't. You know. We live in the suburbs and not see people who live in the city or um you know there are highways that cut through kansas city and divide neighborhoods and um, you know whole whole communities have been destroyed by construction of highways and on-ramps and all this stuff yeah and um and it's a little box that you sit in you're sealed in and you don't have to interact with anyone you just get to your place and then you're there and then you can go out and you don't there's no so, I think, I think that's a huge structural sin in terms of, like, I mean, not only all the, all the pollution, all the, the gas and the rubber and the roads, but the division of people. Absolutely. Yes, make
0: a comment and then we're going to keep going. Or maybe I should just say the and let y'all keep talking. Yeah. I mean, I should. I just wanted to. Leave my friends behind I'm instead. Uh, I just, Two definitions for you, right? Structural sin refers to the ways in which social structures and institutions over time perpetuate and produce cumulative, durable inequities. When we talk about structural sin, cumulative, durable inequities. So to understand structural sin, you have to understand the historical context in which it came up. So let me give an example that you get. How many of you have been on um, 71? Right? How many of you, when you're driving on 71, either going south or north, if if you if if, if, that. It maddened, and you do it during rush hour, and again, I know that rush hour is like not a real thing during COVID, but uh, but during rush hour, and it drives you crazy about the stoplights on uh, 59 and 55. You're like, why do they have stoplights on this highway that's connecting people? Because, because, first of all, Bruce R. Watkins, Right? It's not supposed to be a highway, it's supposed to be a throughway. But the second thing that we have to understand, that in this very racialized Kansas City, the city for so long has tried to take a highway and run it through the backyards of people who own property along 71, and at some point the neighbors said, you are not sending a highway through us. Just like you wouldn't put it through someone's backyard in Overland Park, you're not going to put it in our backyard. And the agreement, I mean, it took 25 years to build 71. And the agreement that neighbors forced the city to make was that they were gonna put stoplights. And here's the thing, you can say, hey, they could have done this in different ways to make the traffic flow better and all that's true, but the historical context for understanding how racism works in the city and how we take property from black folks is, that's what 71 is. It's cumulative and it's durable, like the inequity about who takes land when we invoke eminent domain. Like that is contextual here, and I get frustrated too. And then I realize, like, this is some people staying up for the fact that they're not having a highway you run through their backyard. And I actually am like, okay, I'm done, because it's also evidence of how normal everyday folks can actually start to stand up against the structures that want to construct a thing that makes it easier for them. Sometimes I don't care about it being easier for you.
2: A lot of times I don't care That's part of it. Uh, yeah, one more comment. Just like, um, I guess something I, I just kind of always have in my head when it's brought up. I think a stroke. like, I, I really like the term structural sense, because it's like this, you can put this to a lot, but, um, just a mix of priorities like i think it's a i think it's a privilege to not know to not to like to i mean weigh things incorrectly in my in my mind i'm you know i'm open to be disagreed with but i think to worry about the earth and the environment in this day and age is a privileged stance like i mean to be a part of like any trying to stop pollution groups i feel like that's a that's a that's a privileged opportunity because you know, pollution is emitted through like eight, eight companies that do seventy five percent of it. You know, like that's that's not a fight. None of us are going to win or do anything about. But there's people that are hungry. There's people that need shelter. You know, there's people that need help. You know, building <laughs> building shelters. There's people that need. We need people to like hold, make the food at, at these um at these places. You know, those. That's like that's where my mind always goes to when people bring up the environment or the earth or pollution it's to me i'd never really care about that because i know people that are actually just hungry you know that they're like won't survive in a couple weeks because of their housing situation to to think about the earth and that it's 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 a real problem but you're not going to do anything like we're we're, we're not going to like we're not going to actually have an impact there like we i wish we could but I, I feel like my head always goes to what I can actually do, what I can actually see, who I can actually help. And that that was just like something that came to mind when we were talking about pollution and was brought up because I just don't even, like I, I, I my mind does not even acknowledge that. like yeah. it's, it's just like I don't, I don't see why I would stress about that. I know people that are starved, you know. But May I respond Yes, to what you're saying?
0: in as much, so I hear you, and part of what I hear you saying is like, I have to respond to what's in front of me and what's around me, and that makes me feel like I have a sense of advocacy, like I can do something about it. Really appreciate that. And here's what I want to say. In as much as the structures win when they isolate us, the structures win when they get us to believe that the choices that we have in front of us are either or choices. Either I care about racism, or I care about the environment. I, either I care about sexism, or I care about heterosexism. Right? Either I care about native rights to the land, or I care about whether people live in a home. The reality is, all sin, those isms are a function of, are, are part of sin, and all sin is part of a tapestry that says some people deserve and others do not. Now, your point, I take your point, right, that I have some passions, I have some things that are in front of me, there are some things that I have to respond to, but what I would contend is that this idea of who has access to a living wage, who can then get into an affordable home, is absolutely related to the idea of racism and sexism because we pay women at a particular wage as it relates to men, And then that means that post-COVID and inflation and all of this stuff we're seeing now, certain people can keep affording things and other folks have to make decisions. And all I wanna to suggest to all of us, right, is if we get into binary thinking, either-or thinking, you have to choose this or you have to choose that. You are giving into the mindset of the structure that says, "I need you to make a choice," because, as we heard earlier, someone benefits when we become isolated, as
2: opposed to understanding we're connected and united. Yeah, me, I think it's just priorities. I think that, absolutely, that's and we have to make choices, right? Yeah. Let me
0: point out one more thing here, and then I want to use another contextual example for you. This idea of structural sin, it's the idea that there exists a larger social dimension of sin beyond individual wrongdoing. So yes, there is a way in which I can do something to you. Absolutely. But structural sin says there's something more than me doing to you. right? It's not about the act that I do to you. So let me give you an example. Funding for public schools. Do you know how we fund public schools in the United States? This just Property. Property. Property tax. So you all know this, right? Property taxes. So the average house in 64127 is what? Probably actually I did this with a set of students the other day. I was really surprised by what it is. But it's actually like 150000 dollars That's higher than most than what I would have thought, right? But the students did this. So it's about $150,000. The average price for zip code one six four one one three is what? <laughs> Would be what? Yes. That, that's pretty close. Here's the thing. If we tie funding to public schools to areas in which first of all that are blighted and people have moved out of and the houses are like cost nothing. Oh, by the way, that's where we want to put people to live in affordable housing, right? If we tie public funding to those places and then in another house where they have lots of income, right, the houses are worth more and then they pass tax levies because the people can pay more for them, what happens is that we compare the two schools, so we compare Kate. Kansas City Public Schools to the schools like in the Shawnee Mission School District and we're like, why aren't they similar? And we don't get behind the fact that the way we have set up the conditions of the school and the funding of the school, like who has access to those schools, that's all different but we hold them to the same outcomes and then we target the folks in urban areas and we're like, you need to improve your schools and we're gonna close the schools if you don't. And here's my point about structural sin being more important than just what I do to you. I don't care. Structure. I was going to say, I don't care. <laughs> structural sin is not changed by the fact that the individuals inside the Kansas City, Missouri, school district have learned how to be kind and accepting of each other. I'll even say it this way. Structural sin doesn't even care about the fact that the individuals inside of Kansas City, Missouri public schools have learned how to be anti-racist. Yes, that's a good thing, but it doesn't change the conditions of how we have set up funding for those two schools. The reason why we have to talk about structural sin is because individual salvation and all the individual stuff isn't making a difference in the social structures that we live in. And if we don't have, so I'm going to be really kind of evangelical here, I apologize, (laughs) but if we don't have a Jesus that's big enough to save the structure and the people, then what are we doing? My understanding is that on Easter and all the days after Easter was about, right, that he is risen, not just because I can be nice to you, Latia, and I want to be the right kind of Asian who's really welcoming to a black woman and all of that, but that inside that we can live in a community that is full of shalom in which we are thriving together and we are reimagining what the world is. That's why we need a robust understanding of salvation, and in order to do that, we have to understand that the structures in our society at times are killing us, and they're benefiting other segments of us. Some ways forward. I was going to talk about the health disparities, but you all get it. I know you all heard about this, but here's some, some best practices for how we think about this. A preferential option for the poor. The reason why Gutierrez talks about the poor have to be at the center of liberation is we cannot move to a place where we, those of us in power, those of us with privilege, say this is the way to go. We don't know. We're not dealing with it. We don't have it. As a community organizer, I cannot talk about what it means to be in prison. I've never been there. I can stand alongside folks who been in prison and continue to ask them and put them into places where they're advocating for the policies that make sense to them. The reason why I'm not critiquing the way 71 works is because I didn't have my backyard almost get taken away. And if I have to live with a little bit of inconvenience because folks got to assert their rights, then we need to be about that a preferential option for the poor. Those who are marginalized and oppressed need to be at the center of what liberation looks like. They need not to be told. They need not to be uh, uh, given the sense of, like, this is how to do it. We need to listen to them and understand that they are the center, and those of us with power and privilege need to step to the side and put them at the center. Solidarity as an expression of radical commitment. So there's there's this idea about the preferential option for the poor, but then, and this is the point, it's not just empathy, it's solidarity. It's creating relationships with those who are poor and marginalized. If your thing is about affordable housing like got to be talking to some folks who are houseless. If racism is really important to you, you got to be talking to people of color. Solidarity means that we move, remove ourselves from those places of privilege. Not because we can be marginalized. I never ever, as much as I want to proclaim that I'm a feminist, I'm never gonna understand what it means to be like to be a woman. But I gotta be in a relationship with some women who have experiences that can help me understand so that we can build a coalition to do something different. Praxis of love and justice, right? This is more than empathy. This is more than sitting around. Wait, I'm not meaning to offend, but this is more than sitting around on a Sunday night and investigating the issues until we have a sense of yeah, let's go do something without actually doing the something. Failing at doing something is okay because you're still doing the something. In fact, failing at doing something pushes you closer to where you want to go because now you know what not to do again. It takes both love and justice. Love being what pushes you to move into those places, but justice means having enough power to say, to take on those who are making decisions to say, this isn't okay. Now is not enough. The practice of love and justice means that we are going to risk something. We are going to risk something. That we're taking the steps to understand that the conditions that created the structural sin will not go away by themselves, nor will they go away easily, and they're not going to go away without a fight. The question is are we willing to put ourselves in a place with others, those who are marginalized? In solidarity, to stand there—it's like no more. And that looks a ton of different ways, and sometimes it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but. If you're in solidarity with folks, not just doing something because you think it's the right thing to do, but like other folks have started to talk about, like, this is how we think we want to move forward. If you're in solidarity with folks and what you've done is created this preferential option to understand that those who are marginalized are at the center, if they're creating those solutions, let's walk with them. Let's let them decide. And let's see what evolves out of that. If we do that, then we can kind of fulfill this reality. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, neither racism, nor sexism, nor the disregard of people, nor the disregard of our planet, nor the disregard of the structures that are killing us, none of that separates us. From the love of God. This is why we believe in a resurrected Jesus. For nothing less than this. To God.